Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. You privatise your roads with contracts that just fleece the users, but then the taxpayers use fund through money that would otherwise be going to health and education, money straight into the affected the pockets of the private toll operators because they're charging people more money than the market can bear. So it's this profound market failure that taxpayers come and fill the gap because some Wally's written a contract that was overly generous to the private toll operators in the first place. Hi, I'm Paul Carp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent. I'm here with Peter Lewis, who's the Executive Director at Essential, and we're discussing the latest results of the Guardian Essential poll. On our agenda today, we have big support for cost of living relief measures and some thoughts on an absolute cap on emissions after we saw a deal between Labor and the Greens on the safeguard mechanism last week. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for joining. Hey, Paul. Uh, should we start with climate? Uh, and we saw this week there was a decline in the number of people saying that the government's not doing enough about climate change. Uh, what was the finding there? Who would have thought the government does something on climate change and people no longer think they're not doing enough? Um, this is a benchmark we've been running since the era of Lord Malcolm back in 2016, and we've asked people regularly to tell us whether they think the government is not doing enough, doing enough, doing too much, or don't know. And there's still quite a few people that don't know. But not doing enough peaked at 62% in January 20, which was bushfires. Um, and it's down to 39% not doing enough. So that's still a sizable proportion of the population saying, come on, guys, you could do more, but it's as low as it's been. 33% doing enough, 16% doing too much. So you could cut that as saying that um, a majority of the population or pretty close to it is is recognising that government action is either enough or too much. It just depends how you want to weigh that up. Um, I will just have a look at that also in terms of voting intention. So not doing enough, 72% Greens, 44% Labor doing enough, basically 40% both Labor and Coalition are happy there and the Greens are lower at 23, 31% of Coalition doing too much. Right, okay, so they're Coalition voters looking at the safeguard deal and, and shaking their heads. Going, socialism. There were also a few individual measures about uh, how we might tackle climate change that caught my eye. Uh, Pretty much exactly half of people 
wanted a national authority uh, to manage the transition to renewable energy and half of people wanted the government to assess the impact of greenhouse gas emissions when they're approving new projects. Those are interesting measures that there's a bit of a difference between Labor and the Greens on. What did you find there? So I think we had a bit of a chat when we were putting this report together when it was likely that the... um, the legislation would go through. The question was, what's next? Now, I'm not saying people are sitting around, you know, coffee bars or dinner tables talking about these issues, but in terms of the next bit of moving forward, these are all issues that are on the agenda. So there has been a bit of a push from some of the climate investor groups and the ACTU to see a a national energy transition authority established, and there's been a bit of noise about that over the last couple of weeks. Disclosure, I've been helping them make that noise. Um, Governments accessing the impact of the greenhouse gas emissions when considering approval of new projects was something that you'd been seeing bubbling away. And then there's also still the call to end all future coal mining and gas extraction projects. So on those first two, the National Energy Transition Authority, it's 51% support, just 21% opposition. Pretty similar with the considering greenhouse gas emissions when considering approval of new projects. Again, 50, 20 opposed. Ending all future coal and gas, um, it's 34% support, 35% opposed, 31% in the middle. So if you want an issue around climate that is polarising the public in thirds, I think that bottom one is it, Paul. I was surprised when I saw that finding because I thought uh, opposition to new coal and gas was higher. But then I I went and double-checked my figures and the figure that Greens leader Adam Bant quotes is an essential that just asked about coal previously. And when you ask it about coal, it's uh, 62% don't want new coal. But when you asked about coal and gas, it was just 34. So mm. clearly there's like a big chunk of the electorate that recognises uh, gas's role as a, as a transition fuel, I thought. Yeah, or potentially the gas is still softening the the coal. Um, so as a package, it might, it obviously has a, a, has a greater impact. Just in terms of voting breakdown on that last question, 60% of Greens want an end to all future coal, which was, I thought, surprisingly low. 42% of Labor voters. So that shows that this is not um, a, a strict Green um, Labor divide and just 18% of coalition voters, those that have yet to go and move over to the Teals, which where the independents are standing at 30% support for that. Perhaps the people that uh, still wanted some coal and gas had cost of living in mind. There were very uh, strong findings in terms of people wanting the government to get involved on various measures of cost of living. What can you tell us about that? So, so look, we did dive deeply into cost of living this week, and I think one of the most interesting things for me was just you put a list of things governments can do and most people are just going down the line saying, yep, 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 do it. And I'm not sure if that is necessarily a reflection on each individual policy. I think we can unpack that and look at the differences. But I do think we're at a moment where people are wanting government intervention. Um, So a capping prices for electricity and gas, which I don't think is on the agenda of any political party, to be clear, although I might 
be out of the loop there. 72% support, 8% opposition. There's an element of the the package in December that, that was a temporary cap. So it's more whether to continue that, I think. Uh, mm. But yeah, that, that was an extraordinary measure they did in December. Wow. If a political policy had renew- was a form of renewable energy, capping prices for electricity and gas may well be it. Um, cutting taxes there as well. But interestingly, big support for increasing the minimum wage, 73% support. Um, and also strong majority, 57% support for changing industrial laws so it's easier for workers to negotiate pay rises. I think that's interesting, Paul, because when you think about cost of living, there is the cost, but there's also the amount of money in people's pockets. And we are in this period where we still have the hangover of the artificially low wages, which were part of the design of the previous coalition government's economic policy, um, as the then finance minister, Matthias Cormann, um, famously said, it was a design feature of the previous system, keeping wages low. We remember that during that time of pandemic and sluggish economic activity, the head of the Reserve Bank before he started raising interest rates was calling for wages to rise as a part of building back economic resilience. And we are still in a position where people are going, well, what about those wages? We were talking about it all that time ago. We've now got a government in power that, you know, if we remember probably Anthony Albanese's best worst moment of the election campaign was when he was forced to say he was going to give people a pay rise and all the journalists thought they'd got him again. And in fact, it was one of the, the best days of the campaign for him. So I think if Labor's in the higher wages business in the context of rising cost of living, it's not a bad place to be as well. Yeah, and I see what you're saying about uh, there was majority support for all of the forms of cost of living relief. So, uh, you know, people just wanted some help. But there is a 20-point spread between at the bottom end, uh, changing industrial laws so it's easier for workers to negotiate pay rises, got 57% support. And then at the upper end, capping uh, electricity and gas prices and also reducing fuel excise also got 77% support. And that's something that was done temporarily in the Morrison government's last budget, but then expired in September and was not considered to be an economically responsible thing to do. So we're unlikely to see it again, but it's still uh, wildly popular. So one of my explanations for that, Paul, is that some of the issues don't have a political home. So If you look at the voter breakdown on capping prices, it's 76% Labor, 75% Liberal, National, 72% Green. What drags down minimum wage is it's 77% Labor, 81% Green, but 61% Liberal and likewise on IR um, re-regulation, 62% Labor, which is a bit lower than the other ones, but 44% Green. So they're more polarised rather than, um, you know, Non, non-partisan measures. but And I'm interested in your thoughts about how the cost of living debate is playing out within the political context at the moment. And I've got a piece thrown up on The Guardian on Tuesday about this, but it seems that everything now is a contest of cost of living, but no one quite knows what the contest is. And you saw the Ashton by-election on the weekend. We saw the New South Wales election the previous week. Does it feel to you in the centre of it that it's become a slogan that 
is starting to lose its meaning? Uh, no, I, th- I think after the Aston by-election, uh, some Liberals privately were crediting Anthony Albanese for being so robust on, on having policies to try and bring down the cost of living. So uh, it was a big feature of the Liberal Party's campaign to bash up the new government for, you know, uh, rising interest rates in particular. But they, they sort of de-emphasised that as the campaign went on and just focused on uh, local road cuts because they were getting feedback that just 10 months into the new government, people weren't really blaming the Albanese government for the cost of living at all. And, you know, Labor has a reasonably good story to tell about that in terms of their cheaper childcare policy, cheaper medicines and the uh, energy market intervention uh, in December that I mentioned. So I don't think it's a slogan as long as as long as there are things that you can actually point to that improve mm. people's lives. And the, the Liberals now, their lesson from Aston is not, you know, we need to get rid of Peter Dutton or anything. Their lesson that they're taking out of it is, shit, we actually need some policies because, you know, home ownership uh, is really difficult and people want something that speaks to both liberal values but also to people's material uh, situation. So I I think they realise that they need some economic policies now precisely because Mm. people do care about cost of living. Yeah, despite the 100-year history in a government winning a seat, of an opposition in a by-election. The other bit that strikes me is what Albanese's managed to do, which is an incredibly high degree of difficulty, in a world where the levers that government have to actually impact household prices are relatively limited, the public still has an expectation they will do things. Another question we had asking, how much difference do you think the federal government could make to the cost of living? 71% either a lot or a fair amount. I was surprised by that. My thesis had been that people would be saying it's all out of their hands, all they can do is mitigate a little bit of the damage, but they still expect government to do things. It's just that the toolkit is pretty limited. But I think you're right. When you talk about something like childcare, which if you've had kids, as I have, the moment they leave that childcare and move into the public education system, into proper schools, it's like you've got a second salary coming in because the cost of childcare is just so high. And it's Mm -hmm. this total, but it's a total market failure, right? It was set up as an unregulated market. They're trying to turn it into a system that delivers universality for everyone. Now, that has a huge impact on people's cost of living, but it's not it's not like a direct handout or anything like that. It, it's a systemic change. Yeah, and the first step of the childcare plan mid this year is uh, to make the subsidies massively more generous, but they have set up a productivity commission inquiry. And yeah, that is the, the long-term intention is that no matter what income level you're at, no one's going to be excluded from free childcare. So. Which is also like it's a triple whammy. It eases cost of living. It encourages greater productivity by getting more working women feeling like they're not losing money by returning to the paid workforce. And you're giving kids a better chance because it's actually been reimagined as early learning. So the theory goes that we're going to be sort of turbocharging the education experience of kids once they do enter the formal system as well. But can I just say that 
I don't love cost of living as the political frame. And I, I wrote in my piece this week, it feels to me like the sort of construct that comes out of one of those libertarian language labs, you know, the ones that have shifted um, global warming to climate change or came up with tax relief as this kind of semi-medicinal form of economic surgery, or even up in New South Wales, we had this weird one that privatisation became asset recycling. So it strikes me that cost of living kind of individuates, it does three things. Firstly, it individuates the problem as if the burden is on the individual rather than it being a systemic failure. The second thing I think it does is the cost of living almost sounds like it's a natural thing, like the cost of living, it's like the price of our existence. Like I think it, it creates this sense that people don't question. And the final thing is setting it up as a crisis. And I was reading a bit of um, framing work internationally on this. It was interesting, is that the idea of a crisis means all the government needs to do is step in and deliver some blankets and, you know, somewhere to sleep and it will pass. Whereas I think what Labor's doing well with this so-called, and I'm doing air quotes here if you're listening on a podcast that won't make much sense, cost of living crisis, is using as an opportunity to look at some more systemic-based reforms, both to early learning, to energy, and also to the wages system. So I guess never waste a crisis. I just wonder if there's a better way of describing what we're in and if it's really the crisis we're in is that the whole agenda of global markets and privatised services hasn't really worked. But I don't know if you can turn that into an acronym. Could it be uh, the 2004 Latham slogan, ease the squeeze? Could that be it? I loved ease the squeeze. I loved ease the squeeze. I thought, yeah. Just everything you said after that has been no good. But I know it hasn't been great since. Ease the squeeze, great, yep. Particularly in the past week. But, you know, you go. Oh, I was going to say, I think the debate about the government can and should do more is, is particularly interesting in the housing context because you've got this Barney between Labor and the Greens where Labor are saying pass the $10 billion housing future fund and the, the Greens are still holding out on that and arguing for more for renters and they both think that they're onto a winning ticket on that. So I think that these sorts of findings that people believe the government can do a lot on the cost of living is is what is going to sort of fuel that argument, which is going to continue into budget week. So as long as it doesn't end in emergency relief payments that break the budget, because I think one of the things that happened in the New South Wales election, and it was a successfully prosecuted campaign, and there were some good policies that were taken. But the one that gets up my goat is there was this toll rebate for people that use privatised roads so much that it's sending them <laughs> broke. So you you privatise your roads with contracts that just fleece the users, but then the taxpayers use fund through money that would otherwise be going to health and education money straight into the affected the pockets of the private toll operators because they're charging people more money than the market can bear. So it's this profound market failure that taxpayers come and fill the gap because some Wally's written a contract that was overly generous to the private toll operators in the first place. So compulsorily so, acquire the toll road, is that what you reckon? Oh, I don't know. But you see what I'm saying, though, that is that's a cost of living measure that has impacts long-term on taxpayers and just re-embeds a really dodgy model of delivering essential services. We had some other interesting questions. Uh, have you ever asked this one before about uh, about going to war? 
I hadn't. It was sparked by our discussion last week, Paul, and it seems like um, and I know you've been following this in more detail than me, so I'll give you the number and you can give the context, but we, we asked a simple question. Do you think the Prime Minister should be required to get a cr- approval from Parliament before making a decision to go to war? And this was obviously in the aftermath of the 20 years of the decision to go to war in Iraq that didn't go through the Parliament. 90 to 10 was the finding there in favour of the Prime Minister being required to get approval from Parliament. Ooh, coalition slightly more than Labor. So 89-11 Labor, 90-10 Coalition, 96-4 Greens. Um, but there has been a report, I believe, Paul, on this and maybe the proposition that's being put forward is a little bit more nuanced. Yeah, the, so the slightly uh, softer option for parliamentary review is that after the executive, so that's, you know, the Prime Minister and Cabinet have decided to uh, commit us to war, that then Parliament would be recalled, the Minister would be forced to give uh, an explanation and the legal basis for going to war, and then Parliament would uh, be able to debate it and have input. So it's a... But it's no a, right of veto? Sounds like a voice. Well, it, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a bit of feedback after the fact, but, uh, you know, more than a demonstration uh, in the street, but less than a veto, yeah. So what's the, been the catalyst for that? landing there? Uh, well, I, I I think that the executive, uh, regardless of whether it's a progressive or a conservative government, wants to keep that power for itself. I mean, I had Peter Khalil, who's the chair of the uh, Joint Committee of Intelligence and Security uh, on the Australian Politics podcast two weeks ago, and he was he was just saying, like, oh, you've got to respond to emergency situations. It also has, you know, you can't be broadcasting uh, that we're we're going to join conflicts because you lose the element of surprise. Um, we might um, just... The last one might be just um, approval of the Prime Minister. It's still really positive, 52, 35 disapprove, but it is down from, you know, the Christmas highs of 60, so it's dropped eight points since Christmas and risen from 27. So it's sort of a eight point down on approval, eight point up on disapproval. So um, one thing we did pick up there um, that we didn't put on the tables on the website was that the highest levels of disapproval are amongst those who are struggling the most financially. So for those that are actually in the middle of the cost of living crisis that I don't want to call a cost of living crisis anymore, they are the ones that are least liking what they see at the moment. Right. And is that uh, is there a particular party breakdown for that? Because I, it, it occurred to me that, you know, this is at a time that the coalition is banging on particularly about lack of detail on the voice. And even though Labor and the Greens did a deal on the safeguard mechanism, Adam Bant was still very critical of them, saying that it was like dealing with the uh, political wing of the coal and gas lobby. Was Anthony Albanese's disapproval going up amongst those on the left or the right? So Labor voters, 83-9. He's gone from a long-term zero on strongly disapprove right up to one. (laughs) Um, Coalition, 29 approve, 62 disapprove. Green, 67 approve, 20% disapprove. And that kind of mix of minor parties, independents, which is a little bit of a mixed lolly bag, it's 31% approve, 52% disapprove. So it's still, 
I don't know. I, I hate the idea of honeymoons. It's not a honeymoon anymore. He's sort of almost a year into the job, and I think is it a competence time moon? To talk. We'll almost be doing that sort of one year retrospective pretty soon, Paul. Yeah, honeymoon sort of implies that it's automatic and it lasts for a particular period of time, but it might just be people think he's doing a better job of it, you know. And yeah, there, there's no doubt there are significant headwinds in those prices. That global inflation um, is putting pressure on a particular cohort. That's the final thing that we didn't really talk about. 20% of people are going down the line saying that they are struggling to afford everything from housing to childcare if they've got young kids, energy bills, petrol and groceries. There's another 40% saying they're finding it a bit difficult to afford these things. And there's only a third of people who are in like the economic banana chair just saying things are still pretty comfortable. That's not what we are not, we normally see in this country. Mm. Well, we might leave it there and, uh, you know, get back to the tools so we can earn enough to be in the economic banana chair ourselves at some point. Uh, all right. Thank you so much for joining me, Peter. No worries. This episode was produced by Mel Chun. Uh, the executive producer is Miles Martignoni. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.